2: This is
3: Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Global investors search for direction with global economic recovery uneven, pandemic risk not going away, and geopolitical risk on the rise. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. A lot of ups and downs this week, but no clear direction with concerns over the pandemic shifting overseas to places like India as the United States makes progress on vaccinations with
4: much more yet to do. We let up now. And stop being vigilant. This virus will erase the progress we've already achieved. The sacrifices we've made. The lives that have been put on hold. The loved ones who've been taken from us. The time we're never going to get back. There was a lot of talk about
3: infrastructure, including what it means. And some groping toward a compromise. But prospects remained very unclear. And U.S. corporate earnings have come in strong so far. But let's be honest... That was more or less expected, wasn't it? And the markets, by and large, reflected the gives and the takes, with equities hesitating in their reflation march upward and the 10-year yield staying just about 1.5, neither surging toward two nor falling back down. Bloomberg broke the news that President Biden may be getting ready to follow through on candidate Biden's commitment to eliminate preferential tax treatment for capital gains, at least for those making over $1 million a year, as part of an effort to pay for some of the other programs that the administration wants. To take us through what this could mean, we welcome now David Herzig. He is tax principal in the EY Private Client Services Tax Practice. So David, thank you so much for being with us. As I say, this doesn't come as a necessary shock to anybody because the president had it in his campaign uh, website as a practical matter, but what would this mean for the taxpayer, and that for that matter, for capital formation generally in the country?
4: Yes,
2: David, thanks for having me. Um, I mean, it's, I think you hit the nail on the head with the first thing, right? This isn't a surprise if you know President Biden proposed this during the campaign. Um, we haven't seen the actual proposal, the America Family Plan yet, which which will kind of give us some more guidance. But it is really interesting to see what, what might happen with these tax rates increasing because, you know, if you're in New York or California even, the marginal rate might even be higher than the than the proposed rate because you have the state level tax, too. So you're seeing tax foundation putting out that New York might have a marginal rate of 58.2%, California might have a marginal rate of 56.7%. So these rates will really, I think, impact you know the way people look at, as you said, capital formation. How they balance our portfolio and what kind of goes on in, in kind of their overall tax plan.
3: Yeah. So, so um, the real question is for the people who are making more than a million dollars a year, they have, they can afford some really first-rate tax advice, the kind that you give them, actually. So, uh, if people come to you and say, "What do I do in response to this?" How do you change your investment behavior in response to something like eliminating the preferential treatment for ta- capital tax gain for ta- capital gains?
2: Well, I mean, I think that's a, I mean, it's a hard question, right? Because we don't, I guess as an initial matter, you don't know if really that we'll get to the 39.6% right. that President Biden's proposing, right? There's there's questions of how this might work through the actual budget process, but let's assume for your argument, right, that we'll use the 396 that that's actually what gets passed through Congress. The question is, what do you do about that? And I think that's a challenging question for most taxpayers, right? When we talk to Taxpayers about this, you know, the questions become, you know, is this going to be retroactive? Should I sell now and then think about buying later and capturing the lower tax rate now? Should we wait and see kind of what happens and see if the rate actually goes not 39 percent, but maybe a 34 percent or 30 percent and kind of see what happens? It, there's a lot of questions and moving parts about what you might want to do, depending on where the rate lands. I mean, there's just a lot of uncertainty right now.
3: I got a glimpse of one report that came out uh, on what's happened in the past that suggested that if you do increase taxes on capital gains, uh, that you may move more business into pass-throughs and away from separate entities. It, does that make sense?
2: Well, I mean, I think generally, like, what the way you have to look at this is, there's this kind of the, the big elephant in the room that no one's really discussing now is this, this thing called the locked-in effect, right? Mm-hmm. And so the locked-in effect is basically this economic theory that says you, you, you won't sell if the tax rates get too high, right? So if, right. if tax rates get too high, I'm just going to hold on to my stock and wait. And so one of the things the Democrats are kind of proposing is saying one of the key drivers of the locked-in effect is step up a basis at death. So, what happens then is that when I die, I get an increased basis in my stock or whatever it is, and that kind of helps eliminate or mitigate against this capital gains rate increase. So when you look at this, you say to your point about like should we move from corporate to partnerships or or how should I think about my investment strategy? If you eliminate capital gains preferences at death you 're going to see some different kinds of drivers for taxpayers trying to figure out which is the most efficient kind of capital structure. And, and, it you know, generally partnerships have lower overall rates than corporate structures. So you could definitely see a shift to kind of the move to more partnership-type structure.
3: Yeah, but I, it's very interesting. I had not made the connection. I'm not a tax lawyer like you, but I hadn't made the connection, <laughs> actually, with the stepped-up basis uh, in inheritance. That's, that's very interesting. Let me... Ch- turn to a different subject, which is proposals to increase the funding for auditing by the IRS. You've seen that now to pay for various things, maybe eliminating the SALT limitation, but for whatever purpose. Is it pretty clear that if we ramped up the spending on IRS assets, we would ramp up the revenue we get?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what you see, like all the all the kind of studies that have been done and all the, the research that's been done on the matter is if you increase spending on audits, you increase tax revenues.
3: David, thanks. That's David Herzig, tax principal with EY's private client services tax practice. Coming up, it's bad enough to speculate on Dogecoin or non fungible tokens, but European football? We talk with Steve Pelluca of Bain Capital about what was behind that attempted coup that was the Super
0: Soccer League. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
5: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David
3: Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Investors are getting creative in a low-rate, low-return world. SPACs, for instance, used to be a last resort for companies struggling to go public, but they've become all the rage. At least until the SEC warned this month about accounting errors. They raised nearly $26 billion of share sales in January alone, compared with less than $14 billion in all of 2019. Here's Scott Minard of Guggenheim.
6: The upside is if uh, the sponsor finds a really good investment, uh, you you could uh, still double or triple your money.
3: It's a similar story with cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin broke out in 2017 before plunging and shot up to nearly $65,000 last week before tumbling once again. In addition to institutional interest, the NASDAQ listing of Coinbase last week lifted crypto's profile in mainstream markets.
5: It's obvious it's an asset people are investing in. You know, our clients are asking us, can we invest in this asset and you know, put it in our accounts and look at it?
3: That's Back of America chairman Brian Moynihan. Smaller coins like Dogecoin, which was created as a joke, soared along with Bitcoin and has Elon Musk's backing. Here's Galaxy Digital's Mike
4: Novogratz. You know, Doge was a meme coin. It doesn't really have a purpose. Let's put people in the safest, best stuff, uh, not, you know, these joke coins.
3: The crypto craze also fueled the rise of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, unique irreplaceable identifiers created by algorithms, which gives value to digital art and other assets. There's money to be made with NFTs. In February, an animated image of a flying cat leaving a rainbow trail went for almost $600,000.
2: reality is the collectibles market is somewhere between 300 and 500 billion. Uh, dollars U.S. per uh, total. And I think that the reality is this market could get just as large.
3: That's Jonathan Bixby from NFT Investments. There was a time when the ultra wealthy might buy a sports team as a way to diversify their portfolio. But this week, a group of elite European football clubs decided to go further and create a whole new league, a super soccer league that would turn the richest and most popular sport in the world on its head. Twelve clubs from England, Spain and Italy signed on, backed by $4.8 billion in debt financing from J.P. Morgan. But it created a storm of protest from fans and from U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson. By the end of the week, several teams were backing out. Here's European Commission Executive Vice President Margaret Vestager.
7: I myself just, you know, kind of relieved that now some of the clubs are, are dropping out. As you have heard, my colleague, uh, Margaret Skinas, very, very strong that this is not the European way when it comes to football.
3: Turns out the Super Soccer League may not make it but you have to wonder whether it made sound business sense or was just another example of too much money searching for too few opportunities before the league collapsed. We heard from someone who resides at the crossroads of high finance and sports ownership. Steve Pagliuca is co-chairman of private equity giant Bain Capital and co-owner of the Boston Celtics. So we spoke with him before the league collapse
4: about what was up with the
3: super soccer league
4: on paper, conceptually, moving to a more American-style sports ownership situation will be great for those big clubs. Because right now in Europe, um, there, is no, there are no cost controls, virtually no cost controls. You can own a major franchise and be relegated. Um, so that is a lot of uncertainty from a business standpoint. And, uh, and so on paper, they've been talking about this, I think, for close to uh, 20 years now. But on paper, it, it makes a lot of sense for those large clubs. Now, it's going to cause a lot of disruption and, and football is a way of life in, in uh, England and, and countries in Europe. So I think you'll see a battle go on. But uh, ultimately, uh, the large city owners that are supplying a lot of those revenues, I think, want to capitalize on that and want a more stable structure.
3: I think I may have a rough, a very rough understanding of why the also-rans, if I can call them that, want to participate in this because they'll get a bigger piece of the pie, as I understand. There'll be some caps on how much people can spend. Why do the rich clubs want this? Because uh, don't the rich get richer when it comes to European football?
4: Well, I think part of the proposal is is to have a, a more uh, a partnership with players, where there's a, a. I think they're talking about a 55% of the take uh, goes goes to the players, and right now I think the players are taking 80% of the take, and therefore even these hmm. big clubs are losing money, you know, given the transfer costs and given the cost of players. So I think part and parcel with it is is a uh, you can't be relegated, and then having some cost controls in to ensure you can make a modicum of profitability. This is a different world
3: from what I think a lot of people have seen with so much monetary and fiscal stimulus in the United States, but also in Europe and Japan. How does that affect the investment decision? How do you avoid overpriced assets? How do you find bargains in that world?
4: Well, there's very few bargains in that world. Uh, we're, we're at kind of all-time high multiples. As you know, the money supply increased over 25%, uh, which normally leads to inflation, and, uh, and, and the deficit is at an all-time high as well. So, so that's the, that's the, uh, the situation. There, there's a lot of money uh, chasing few deals. And that's been great for private equity because what you have to do in private equity is A, be patient. B, you have to have a thesis when you buy a company on how you're going to improve it, make it larger, make it global, have new products. Because at the end of the day, fundamentally, uh, people will pay for growing companies. So if you're gonna pay those high multiples, you have to have a plan that's gonna justify that. Um, and, uh, and, and that's what we do at Bain Capital. We were formed, as you know, from a consulting firm called Bain and & Company. And from day one, we've been uh, helping companies grow and, and, uh, and prosper. And, and that's what we have to keep doing. And, and we got to proceed with caution, not get carried away to pay, uh, be the last one to pay the highest multiple before the crash, but pay a, a, you have to pay a fair multiple and then make those companies grow.
3: You mentioned the money supply and inflation. There's something in a debate going on between, on the one hand, I might put Jay Powell on one side saying, don't really worry about inflation that much, given for a long time it's been deflationary, disinflationary rather than inflationary. And Larry Summers, perhaps, on the other side saying, wait a second, pumping this much money into the economy, you're going to get more inflation than you think. Where do you come out on that? And how do you take that into account if you do when you're looking at investments?
4: Well, I'm I'm with Larry Summers on that. If if you look at at all the data points in any country in the last hundred years, when the money supply has increased. That level, you have gotten inflation. You know, ninety-five. You know, ninety-eight percent of the time, within a year or two after those kinds of massive increases. So I think there will be inflation. And so what you have to do is factor that into your investment decisions and uh, and and figure out what companies will will uh, will be able to get through in an inflationary period. So companies that companies that. Uh, can withstand that kind of inflation. You have to factor that in your models and factor that in price you pay.
3: Do you take into account the the future strength or weakness of the dollar? Because typically when you run de- record deficits, trade deficit as well as budget deficit, you're going to have a weaker currency. Do you anticipate that possibility? Do you take that into account in investing?
4: I think you have to take that into account as well, especially if you're if you're uh, uh, on both sides of it. If if, you're, if the dollar appreciates and you're on a highly export driven business, uh, USA business that exports all over the world, that's going to be beneficial to you. Um, If you have raw materials and you have things that you're importing to manufacture, um, that's going to be uh, not beneficial to you. So uh, I would suspect we're going to have an inflationary environment and those things will have to be factored in all of our our investment decisions.
3: Thanks to Steve Pagliuca of Bain Capital. Coming up, investing in our future. What would putting $2.25 trillion to work on infrastructure do for our economy and for U.S. business? from Ralph Stein of Evercore. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. There was a lot more talking about infrastructure this week, including talk between the president and a bipartisan group of lawmakers about what's needed and about how to pay for it. Everyone seems to agree something needs to be done, but we don't always hear exactly what it would accomplish. So we asked someone who spent his career walking the halls of power in Washington and then those of Wall Street, Evercore co-chairman and co-CEO Ralph Schlossstein.
5: I think the economy is in uh, very, very uh, good shape, poised to make a quite rapid recovery. And I believe, if anything, the economy uh, is gonna surprise on the upside uh, because there's so much uh, pent up uh, demand uh, to consume, so much uh, build-up of net worth uh, and savings on uh, personal balance sheets, uh, that if we're going to get a surprise, I believe it's on the upside, and I think if we're going to get a surprise in unemployment, I think it will be in how rapidly it declines. And I think if we get a surprise in earnings, it will also be on the upside. Uh,
3: so I think one of the questions people have is, people expect that sort of upswing, no question. Is it going to be a sugar a, a sugar high that we come down off of quickly? Or what do you think about the longer term prospects, not just for 2021, but going into 2022 and beyond?
5: The challenge here is to get back to potential uh, as rapidly as possible, but not on a path that causes you to overshoot and cause... Uh, you know, longer-term and more sustained uh, inflation, uh, as you said in your opening remarks, uh, the amount of uh, fiscal and monetary stimulus uh, that has been applied is absolutely unprecedented, and the rapidity with which it's been applied is also uh, unprecedented. So we're a little bit in uncharted waters uh, as to uh, what happens after we get closer. Uh, to, uh, you know, potential uh, growth. I will say uh, that over the long term, we have to get more balance uh, between revenues and expenditures in the government. Uh, You know, the pace at which debt is expanding is tolerable in a period of economic decline like uh, like we've been in for the last year or so but it's not sustainable, uh, over the longer term.
3: One of the advantages I think of your job is you get to talk to CEOs all the time. Are they concerned about overshooting? I think was the
5: term you used. Are they uh, worried about running the economy too hot? At this point, I'd say there's very little concern, uh, about that. Uh, CEOs are uh, concerned about making sure they have, uh, sufficient, uh, Uh, trained and qualified workers. Uh, They're concerned about their uh, supply chains due to the rapidity of the recovery. Uh, But at this point, uh, you know, we're still so far away from, uh, you know, capacity uh, that that uh, concern really doesn't exist uh, today. And I will say also that the, the logical concern that one might have is that uh, inflation uh, is, at, is sustained at a much higher level than we would like. And I do believe that uh, you know, technology, including some of the advances that we've made uh, as a result of COVID, does serve as a longer-term uh, depressant on inflation.
3: So one of the things we're seeing proposed now by President Biden is a massive, I think that's not an overstatement, a proposal for what he calls infrastructure, $2.25 trillion. We also now have Republican senators coming back and saying, well, we believe in infrastructure, but maybe it's the tune of $570 billion rather than $2.25 trillion." But whatever the number is, what is that likely to do to the economy?
5: It's going to provide uh, longer term, uh, not immediate stimulus because as we all know uh, the idea of quote unquote shovel ready projects for uh, economic stimulus has been tried uh, in many past recessions uh, and doesn't really work because shovel ready never seems to be (laughs) shovel ready. Uh, I think the proposition that we need to make uh, multi hundred billion perhaps trillion ish dollar investments in Uh, roads, bridges, broadband, uh, all things that uh, enhance uh, productivity over the intermediate to longer term. I think there's broad-based agreement on that, Uh, uh, and uh, I think there is still compromise or disagreement on the amount. Uh, There's there's certainly disagreement on what uh, constitutes infrastructure, and there are certainly things in President Uh, Biden's proposal that, uh, you know, expand the historical definition of infrastructure. And then, of course, there's the big question about how uh, does this get financed?
3: Thanks to Ralph Schlossstein of Evercore. Coming up, it's the second largest economy in the world. And if we thought China might be throwing its economic weight around, now we have the evidence from special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard and Anna Gelpern of Georgetown University. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally,
2: This is Bloomberg Wall
0: Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
3: China, the number two economy in the world, gaining on the United States, and it is coming to exercise its economic power around the world, including through that one belt, one road, making a lot of sovereign loans all around the world. We don't know very much about them, but we now have a new insight into them. And that is because of Professor Anna Gelpert. She is from Georgetown University, and we welcome her now. She's done a study on it. We're joined by our special contributor, Larry Summers, who really pointed out, Anna, to be familiar with So, Anna, it's a fascinating thing you did. You actually got your hands on some of these contracts, because most of us can never see what they are. The terms on which China is lending to some sovereigns around the world. What did you learn?
7: The project is very much a collaboration. There are folks from Aid Data, William and Mary, specialize in finding um, project documents about um, various bilateral uh, uh, deals with China and otherwise. And um, they found uh, 100, pure accident, by the way, 100, nice round number, um, contracts between Chinese lenders, primarily China Exon Bank and China Development Bank, and governments in developing countries. And it's both One Belt, One Road, and you know, large emerging markets in Latin America, Argentina, Ecuador, among them. Um, and the question was: so um, uh, Brad Parks at Aid Data, Scott Morris at Center for Global Development, and Christoph Traybers and Sebastian Hornet uh, Keel and I um, tried to figure out whether these Chinese contracts were normal, whether they were um, uh, roughly in line with other bilateral official contracts, with other commercial contracts, or whether in fact the story that you see in the papers about China taking over Sri Lanka ports and electricity, and you know, Laos is yeah. the right story. There's an enormous amount of kind of myth-making and myth-busting right. in the space, but not a whole lot of um, fact. So what did you
3: find? What was the myth? What was the reality?
7: The myth was China lends against infrastructure. Uh, China takes over these facilities on the one hand, and the other myth is um, you know China's a benevolent lender um, that helps development. Well, neither of those is really quite right. And these warring myths are sort of beside the point. What we found was uh, terms that are more aggressive, more muscular than uh, other bilateral official contracts um, and more muscular than uh, most commercial contracts. But the difference we found was really a difference of degree. So China is much more likely to use revenue accounts. So to control cash, for example, Um, in a bank account as additional security beyond sovereign credit than other uh, lenders. China is much more likely to use, Chinese lenders, much more likely to use very expansive confidentiality clauses. Um, Again, others use them, but not nearly as often. We see a lot more linkages between the loan contracts and other Projects by the same Chinese lender or other Chinese lenders or Chinese enterprises in the borrowing country. Um, so cross default linkages. Um, and then there is one clause that we found that is truly unique, and that is a promise not to restructure the debt uh, in the Paris Club of uh, you know, government-to-government creditors, or otherwise in these coordinated restructuring.
3: So, Larry, let me pick, that goes to you, actually, as former Treasury Secretary. You know the Paris Club well. That's been historically a sort of ad hoc way we work it out when people can't pay their debts. Did it come as a surprise to you that they'd exclude these debt agreements from the Paris Club?
6: I've learned not to be surprised uh, too often. I think Anna's done hugely important research that moves us beyond ideology to some practicalities. And I think... Those practicalities are that it's wrong when people go on to go into strong rhetoric about debt-trap diplomacy. But at the same time, China isn't completely play and fair vis-a-vis other creditors. And writing clauses into its contract that says that we won't participate in the global multilateral rescheduling processes isn't really... Fair and you can't have a system where people write go to people who are desperate for money and get them to agree to contracts that one particular category of debt can't ever be restructured. So I think we're going to be in a much more fruitful position to have international dialogue on these matters because of uh, the research that Anna and her many colleagues and her many colleagues have done, but look this is a big deal we've got more flow of credit across international borders than at almost any point in history you look at the amount of debt that's carrying junk bond type spreads and that's telling you that people think that not always that debt's going to get repaid and sometimes it's going to have to be restructured and The right time to think about the restructuring of debt is not when we're in extremis, but uh, in advance. And so I think there's going to need to be a lot of soul searching in the international community around these debt uh, issues. And, you know, I think that it's going to take it's going to take time. I think one of the important conclusions of Anna's research is that none of us have a monopoly on virtue and that some of the practices that, People thought of as problematic Chinese practices are also uh, problematic European practices and maybe even problematic, in some cases, American uh, practices. And so we just need to work through a uh, system that can work for everybody.
3: So, Anna, let's pick up on what Larry just said, uh, and you are an expert on sovereign debt, not just Chinese, but in general, sovereign debt. Uh, does it make sense to ask the question, how many of these provisions, muscular you call them, provisions are to protect... China as a lender, as opposed to advanced China, China policies, or is it inherent in any sovereign debt that, in fact, the sovereign doing the lending is going to try to have their will in things other than just getting repaid?
7: So that's a fabulous question, David, because I think that we spend way too much time haggling over these boundaries between official and commercial lending, whereas, in fact, I think the assumption has got to be, and what we see is, it's all mixed motive and the motives shift over time. What we see in the contracts is the leverage that the lender has to pursue their goals. I mean, we saw this in Russia Ukraine, mind you, right, where the Russian Sovereign Love Fund sued Ukraine for $3 billion in London. Was that a commercial transaction or was that part of a broader strategy? In some sense, commercial official is is not a fruitful question to ask. The question is, what are the objectives of this lender? What tools does this lender have? And what bargaining power does the borrower have? I mean, borrowers have agency. And I think that it's um, important for us to make sure that, A, um, countries know what they're getting into, and that uh, there is some sort of a set of norms, and in particular surrounding disclosure, I must say, I mean, the one thing that I learned from this project is I really want to see the contract. (laughs) There are a set of special
6: features about sovereign debt and policy and all that, but some of this comes back to something that in a way is even uh, simpler. If I'm borrowing to buy a car, I want two things. I want as low an interest rate as possible. And I also want, in the event that I don't pay the car back, pay the debt back, it to be as hard for the lender to repossess the car as possible. And there's some trade-off between those two things. If it's going to be really hard to repossess the car, the lender's going to demand a higher rate. And so you have to think about it both at the beginning in terms of the desire to have lower rates and partway through in the event that uh, thing that things go wrong. And that's really the subtlety uh in this subject.
3: Okay, thank you so very much to Professor Anna Gelpern of Georgetown Law, and of course, Wall Street Week special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard University. Finally, one more thought. Can Zoom be hazardous to your health? Working from home. A year ago, most of us didn't really think much about it, but 13 months ago, we all packed up our things and we left the office. And we went off to work from our homes, never thinking that it might last for over a year. So now, we've spent a year figuring it all out, the tech, the kids learning from home, finding some place to do our work, and, oh yes, learning how to use Zoom, or Skype, or whatever. At first, it was a rush, how much we could get accomplished. But now, it's starting to dawn on us that there's another side to this working from home business. Sure, it's convenient to walk down the hall or around the corner, but it's equally convenient for everyone else to reach out and get us any time of day or night, and that includes goodness knows on the weekends. Which takes us to that health issue and the HSBC program manager working from home, who on a Sunday afternoon felt tightness in his chest and some difficulty breathing. Yes, he was having a heart attack. And as Johnny Frostick laid out in a LinkedIn post that's been liked over 200,000 times, his first thoughts weren't about himself or about his family. He told Bloomberg News he was worried about missing a meeting with his manager coming up the next day. In his words, this isn't convenient. Let's be clear, we all had the ability to work too much without the help of Zoom, And Mr. Frostick is the first to admit he needs to lose a bit of weight. But as we go forward into this new world, maybe we should think about whether it may be a bit too easy to work anytime and anywhere. When Mr. Frostick listed his new priorities in his LinkedIn post, The first was, I'm not spending all day on Zoom anymore. Sound like someone you know? That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.